The reading today comes from Revelation 16, verses 17 through 21. John writes, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So thank you, uh, Trey, for taking us through that. Uh, Good morning, Arcadia. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. And for those of you who were here last week... Um, I must publicly apologize for saying anything about the Arizona Diamondbacks (laughs) because they lost three straight after I said something. And uh, so now the Diamondbacks are also under a curse. It's the curse of the pastor. (sighs) I give up. Let's just talk about the Bible here at church and Jesus, all right? So we have been going through the book of Revelation. This is our ninth of 12 weeks In the book of Revelation, I'll give you a a little bit of a review and then preview. Uh, I'm just going to review the more recent weeks. Okay. Why is this happening now with this mic? This started last week. Well, all right. It's okay now. All right. So. Uh, Three weeks ago, Trey took us through chapter 12, which was the cosmic battle. And you remember the cosmic battle had, as their characters, there there was the dragon and there was the pregnant lady, and then the dragon gets into a fight with angels in heaven, and the angels win, and the dragon is cast down permanently. Last time the dragon, Satan, is allowed to ever be in the presence of God in heaven— He's cast down to the earth. And so two weeks ago, we looked at chapter 13, which was the earthly battle. And, and, and so now the dragon, even though he knows he's defeated, Satan knows he's defeated, uh, he's doubling down and he's taking on uh, everybody on the earth and making things miserable. Last week was chapter 14, and we could see hope last week. We saw the lamb, Jesus. He was standing there on Mount Zion. And there was a new song that was being sung by all of the redeemed. And there was judgment of evil. And then there was also a harvest. The harvest included both salvation and purging. And there was vindication for the saints, the believers in Jesus who had died in their faith. There was justice for them. And today we look at chapters 15 and 16 which is finally the culmination of the seventh trumpet from four weeks ago when we looked at uh, the end of chapter 11 and the seven trumpets were blown and the seventh trumpet was blown and then we had this, like, what, I, what I just reviewed, this three-chapter um, uh, three uh, sort of interlude before the, the seven bowls from the seventh trumpet will be opened. 
And so today we have chapters 15 and 16. Chapter 15 preps us for the unleashing of these seven bowls, and then chapter 16 is the seven bowls, and each bowl contains a plague. And now, just again, as a little bit of a preview, uh, these next three weeks after today uh, bring us to the conquest of Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great falls, which precedes then, the, uh, in, the, in the 11th week of this series, the final battle which then precedes the glorious coming of the new Jerusalem. That'll be on November 26th. That'll be Revelation 21 and 22. One of the thoughts that uh, occurred to me uh, this last week, um, do any of you enjoy doing jigsaw puzzles or your families? Like, anybody? Like, two. <laughs> our family, for whatever reason, our family is obsessed with jigsaw puzzles. We... We go to Wisconsin on vacation, and the first thing that my family does is set up a table, and then they, we have these, all these jigsaw puzzles, and the more difficult, the better. And they, they won't even buy a jigsaw puzzle now that has 500 pieces. They have to have at least 1,000 pieces. And I was kind of thinking about that. In a way, the first time you look at Revelation, it kind of feels like you've just opened up a 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzle and threw, throw it on the on the table and you're trying to figure it out. But we've been putting the pieces together and it's taking shape. And we are now beginning to see the final picture that this thousand piece jigsaw puzzle puts together. And that is the culmination on November 26th of, of chapters 21 and 22, the new Jerusalem coming and, and all that comes with that. That's what we're looking at. So let's start with chapter 15, verse 1. And I know you're sitting there going, how are we going to get through two chapters if you're just going to go one verse at a time? Don't worry, just this one verse is one at a time, but it's an important verse. John writes, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. That word amazing can also be translated as wonderful. So this is, John is excited about this. He's praising this. This is good. I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, great and wonderful, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. So the pouring out of these seven plagues, these seven bowls, is going to be rough, yes, but John describes it as great and amazing, great and wonderful. Why? Why would that be? And it's in the last words of that verse, the wrath of God is finished with these plagues. At the cross, remember the last words of Jesus, at the cross is, it is finished. So Jesus is pronouncing that his mission of grace is finished. All grace emanates from him on the cross. He is pronouncing that atonement for sin, for those who would believe in Jesus, is finished. There is no more sacrificial system that is needed. He is the last and final sacrifice. He is the perfect lamb, the one lamb that would come. And he's described in Revelation also as the lamb. He's saying that's all done, but the whole story is not done yet. The story also includes that the wrath of God still must be poured out on those who don't believe in Jesus. Jesus took the wrath of God for those who believe in him, but there is still wrath, judgment, condemnation for those who don't believe in him, but these seven bowls are the end of it. This is going to be the finish of it. And so you have this 
You have these kind of bookends here that is the culmination of everything that God is trying to do here. And so that's a beautiful thing. But I know for a fact, just on having conversations and listening to people, the first question is, well, why does there have to be wrath? Why would a loving God have... There's, why would, if He's so loving, why would there be wrath? Here's why. God is holy. And a holy God cannot abide sin. They don't go together. They don't mix. They can't be together. He cannot abide sin, evil, and wickedness. God cannot help because of his holiness, because of his separateness in that regard. He cannot help to hate sin. And since Genesis 3, our nature is sinful. That's our nature. And because, but because God is holy and good, understand, he's also full of grace. He's 100% grace. He's 100% truth. He is 100% wrath. He is all of those things all at once. But because he is 100% grace as well, he is willing to atone for our sin through his son, himself, through his son, taking on his wrath for those who would believe and grant us grace through that atoning sacrifice. It is not God's fault if we do not accept that grace and embrace the gospel. It's not his fault. That's our responsibility. And, and frankly, I, I don't, why, why would we not be glad that there is retribution for evil? Why would we not be glad for that? People who claim that churches should only, and I hear this all the time, people who claim that churches should only preach love and grace and never talk about sin and darkness and evil, are intellectually, emotionally, theologically, anthropologically, and foundationally challenged when it comes to the reality of the human condition. So what we're getting at with this statement, the wrath of God is finished, is that it's good news. We should greet this news with joy and thankfulness, as John does. Now, going forward, chapter 15 seems to have a number of, of allusions to the Exodus story in the Old Testament. Verses 2 through 4 is reminiscent of the Jews overcoming 400 years of slavery in Egypt through God's provision and rescue. That's the whole story of the Exodus. That's the culminating story of the Exodus. And, and verses 5 through 8 is reminiscence of God's presence with the Jews in the wilderness for that 40 years after they leave Egypt and they're wandering around in the wilderness. And then when we get to chapter 16, the seven bowls in chapter 16 remind us very much of the ten plagues that assisted the Jews' escape from Egypt. Lots of uh, Exodus um, uh, uh, imagery in, in, these ver in these chapters, in these verses. So, verses 2 through 4. John writes, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled or pierced with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. 
Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So that sea of glass mingled or pierced with fire. The sea of glass is a clear picture of God's throne, regal, sovereign, and with all authority. And then it's pierced with fire, or it's mingled with fire through the glass, and and that is symbolic of God's judgment. So he has authority and sovereignty to judge everything. And because of this, the saints, those who believed, who died in Christ, the martyrs who are with God, sang the song of Moses, and they sang the song of the Lamb. They are praising and giving thanks for what is about to take place. So not only is John reveling in this, but so are the saints, the martyrs, who have been seeking vindication. And so the song of Moses is sung in celebration because of God's exodus victory for the Israelites over Egypt. The, 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 exodus, the, the book of Exodus in the Old Testament is often called the gospel of the Old Testament, the good news of the Old Testament. That's, the, that's God saving and rescuing his people in the Old Testament. And then there's the song of Jesus. And this is sung in celebration because of Jesus' victory over Satan, sin, and death through the cross and the resurrection. And, and, and you see in this song that they're singing, they say, great and amazing are your deeds. Exact same words that Paul, uh, John uses in verse 1. Again, they're words of wonder and praise for God. And then verse 4, all nations will come and worship you. Understand, this is not saying that everyone will worship God. We know this cannot be true. Not everyone has worshipped God. Not everyone will worship God. It's not that hard to figure out. It's a rhetorical device that says that there will be persons from or representing all nations, all tribes, all families, all languages, all peoples who will be saved. God plays no favorites. All are welcome. Not all will come. But all nations will have people who are elect. And then verses 5 through 8. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So verse 5, the imagery presented and described in this verse is an allusion to both the tabernacle in the days post-Exodus, that they would construct in the wilderness, and the one great temple that was twice built in Jerusalem. So it's a reference to both of those things. And verse 8, notice um, the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God, both the tabernacle in the wilderness in Exodus and the temple that was twice built would have smoke rising and, and in it, and that was always a symbol of the presence of God. And, and God is the one who lives forever and ever. They sing this. You are the one who lives forever and ever. 
Have you noticed that this saying that God is forever and ever, that God is, he, he was and is and is to come, those sayings about God's eternality are repeated over and over and over in the book of Revelation. So why is that? And the reason is because no one else has the authority he has because he is holy and eternal. Now we may live eternally with him. We may live forever with him, but we had a beginning. We were created by the creator. We are creatures. He is God. And because he and he alone is God, he has the authority. He has the authority and, and I would even argue the, the mandate to pour his wrath out on sin, rebellion, and idolatry. And so the, the question then becomes, are the bowls and the plagues the same thing? So we describe it as the seven bowls. There were the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. Are, are the bowls and the plagues the same thing? The best way to understand it is that each bowl holds a plague. Also remember, <clears throat> this is kind of a, a little bit of, a, of, a, of a, a, a tangent, but it's important to understand this. We mentioned this early in the book of Revelation. Um, many, I would say even most, but not all people, understand the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. They understand these three different releases of God's judgment as describing the same event three different ways from three different perspectives, adding three different layers of understanding, symbols, and, and layers. So there's, there's, there's this idea that it's the same thing. It's just being described three different... Not everybody believes that, but most people believe that. But, but then the question becomes, well, why? Why would, why would you communicate it that way? Why would you have three different sets of narrative describing the same thing. Here's why. It is a rhetorical device. It is a literary device designed to emphasize something. So what is it trying to emphasize? Here, here it is. It, th this idea of using three different ways to describe this is to emphasize the reality of God's victory over evil, to emphasize God's judgment of sin, to emphasize God's salvation of his people, to emphasize God's sovereignty and authority, and to emphasize the glory of the Lamb, Jesus. Now, ultimately, here's, here you go. We can get so caught up in the rhetoric of this, and I, and I have a master's degree in rhetorical analysis. I love this stuff. But you can get so caught up in this stuff that you miss the point. And so I don't want us to miss the point. It doesn't matter, really, in the end, if it's three separate judgments or if it's three different rhetorical devices describing the same set of judgments. It doesn't matter which one it is. Why? Because what really matters is for us to understand that there is victory over evil, that there is judgment of sinners, that there is salvation for those who repent and believe, that God is sovereign, and that the Lamb, Jesus, is glorious. That's what's important. Got it? Good. Let's go. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to move on now to 16. And 16, 1 through 9, I'm going to read first. And this is the first four bowls and the first four plagues. And just like the other two, uh, the seals and the trumpets, the first four go pretty quick and then it slows down and gets more intense for the last three. 
So John writes, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went out and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Now, what, this is really interesting. This did not happen in the first two, uh, the, the seals and the trumpets. But it happens here, and I think this is significant. And I heard the angel in, in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the, alt- and I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Just when somebody might be thinking, Again, why, 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 why would God do this? Why would a loving God do this? Why would he have to do this? The angels stop after the third one, and you hear them praising and saying, he is just to do this. He is sovereign. He has authority. And in fact, he is giving them what they deserve. He's God. We are not. So they're stopping, anticipating this pushback. And before they go to the fourth, they give you that song. And then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. And they cursed the name of God who had power over the plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. I think I mentioned this before. Uh, Sandy Mason, who's one of the pastors in Redemption Churches, um, he was asked once uh, uh, why it's so hard to preach in Phoenix, and he says, because people in Phoenix are not afraid of hell. They're not afraid of heat. <laughs> so notice verse 2. There are eternal divine consequences to sin. There are eternal divine consequences to evil. There are eternal and divine consequences not only to deceiving others, but also for those who allow themselves to be deceived. We talked about this earlier in redemption, in, in Revelation, that it is clear that if you're deceived, that is not an excuse. You should be seeking the truth and be careful of false teachers. And there are divine, eternal consequences for harming God's people. Consequences. Not fun consequences. And this is just getting started. And, and by the way, I know, I know that not everybody believes this stuff, and I get that. I get that. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're new. You're here because a friend or a family member invited you. Maybe you lost a bet and you had to, I don't know, what, whatever. But if the reason you don't believe this is, and, and by the way, this is a common reason people won't believe. If the reason you don't believe this is because you have a problem with a God who is just, and who will mete out justice, I have to ask you a question. Have you never, ever wanted justice for some unjust thing done to you? Have you, ever, have you never thought, I need justice for that thing done for me? Of course you have. So are you God? You have to. He can't do it, but I can. 
You see the logical fallacy there. If you have a right to justice, and you do, wouldn't it be nice if there was a God who understood perfect justice and perfect grace for everything? Now, the first four of the seven bowls cover what scholars would call the traditional ancient divisions of earth. Uh, I'm sorry, of nature. The traditional ancient divisions of nature. Earth, sea, rivers, and sky. And again, if you're thinking this sounds a lot like the ten plagues that God inflicts on Egypt for seizing and holding his people in the book of Exodus, you would be correct. So, the first bowl... No more carefree health for those who worship the beast rather than God. Even if that worship is passive or ignorant, it doesn't matter. So the first bowl is saying that there's no health plan that's going to help you. The second bowl, no more seafood. (laughs) No more sushi. That's, I think, particularly apropos for us. I like sushi. Also, this plague will break down and destroy the circle of life. The third bowl No more fresh water, which is a key ingredient to human life. And the fourth bowl, the direct, the fourth bowl is the direct opposite of the fourth trumpet. The fourth trumpet produced a plague of darkness. This is the direct opposite. This fourth bowl demonstrates that God is sovereign over the environment, climate, and the universe. The fourth bowl unleashes UV rays that no sunscreen can protect us from and heat that no one can bear. One of the most remarkable statements in all of Revelation in response is in response to that fourth plague. Those scorched by the plague did not repent and did not give glory. You got any ideas on this? No? It's my shirt that keeps rubbing against it. It's weird. Okay. All right, so what we really need to do is reread verses 5 through 7 and just kind of hang on this a minute. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, and they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the voice from the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So often people lament these harsh judgments of God and what we seem to forget is that these judgments are for acts that hurt or killed others. Why is there never outrage for the original sin? This judgment is against those who hurt and attacked the people of God And people are outraged by that. What about the original sin, the first sin, the thing that started it all? Why is there no outrage for that? Uh, Here you go. I I refrain as much as I can from using sports analogies in Arcadia. Unless it's soccer, nobody really cares. But I'm going to use one anyway, okay? One of the big complaints I found about how hockey and football games are officiated is that the referees always seem to penalize the retaliation, but never the original infraction. Have you ever noticed that? They catch the retaliation, but they don't... uh, They know there has to be an original infraction, but they don't penalize that. It's especially true in hockey. It drives hockey fans crazy. I know, because I'm a hockey fan, and it drives me crazy. That usually goes unpunished. Now, is that just? 
Is it just that somebody whacks a guy with a stick and the other guy turns around and whacks him back and he's the only one that gets a penalty? Is that justice? Of course it isn't. We recognize that. But when God dares to execute justice and judgment the way we would like referees to mete out judgment and justice, some of us get weepy and whiny about it. I'm not sure I understand that. What is happening here is just and good. And the angel rightly praises God for it, and the choir agrees. John Demeter says it this way, God makes all things right before he makes all things new. And then verses 10 and 11. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Again, the deception of Satan is so powerful that even when it's clear that Satan is evil and that he's going to lose to God, people refuse to repent. Instead, instead they dig in, they double down, they gaslight. And please understand, this is so important. There is still time during these last judgments for people to repent, but most don't. And it just gets more and more difficult. Have any of you ever had a child or a spouse or a friend or a girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever who simply refuses to see that the way they're doing things, the way they're living their life, the way they're thinking about things does not work. It is the way to destruction, but they keep going back to it over and over and over. I'm going to continue to spend more money than I make because sooner or later it's got to even out, right? But it doesn't work out that way. That's why we're doing Financial Peace University, Ramsey course, okay? But you ever run into somebody like that? They just keep doubling down on what doesn't work. They can't seem to learn from their mistakes. Of course you have. By the way, are you that person that other people are thinking of? Just wanted to ask that awkward question. Okay? You see, defiant human will is stubborn. We see that throughout the Bible. And we see it in the world today. And for those who believe in Jesus, be ready for this because it is going to be confusing and discouraging to us when we see it. It is. It's confusing and discouraging to me. By the way, the throne of the beast in verse 10 is symbolic of the great worldly center of all the worldwide Babylonian systems of deception, politics, economics, and philosophy, and education. All of those things that are, that are pulling people away from the worship of, of the one true God. And these systems that so many people believe in and rely on and fervently vote for are now utterly destroyed. As Tom would say, our founding pastor, false gods never fail to fail. Verses 12 through 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So you can start to see the beginning of that final battle. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet... Three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the, to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on that great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed." And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. 
This is the plague that prompts all who stand against God to double down and diligently prepare for the final battle, which they are sure to lose, but in their arrogance, they just can't stop themselves. And my guess is that if your leaders had frogs coming out of their mouths, you'd think they could do anything. So what's the significance of the frogs? In, in God's Mosaic law, frogs were considered unclean. You touch a frog, you've got to get clean before you can go into the tabernacle or the temple. And for early Christians, frogs symbolized demons for the early Christians. So that was very common. Anybody reading this would have understood that. So both the Jew and the Christian, this vision is clear. This is the enemy. Under the sixth bowl, the enemy assemblies, but the battle still awaits. And John takes this moment then to remind the reader of all this New Testament teaching that had already been circulating for several decades. For instance, from Matthew 24, Jesus clearly teaches that his people need to be ready for him to come at any time, like a thief in the night. He says, don't get caught looking the other way. He could come at any time. So I teach an adjunct, I'm an adjunct instructor at GCU. I teach one class at GCU. Have any of you ever been on the campus at GCU in the last few years? Okay, you, you walk around there and there are skateboards and scooters and bicycles and motorized skateboards and motorized scooters. Okay, it's, it's rare to see somebody, everybody's on wheels, and they're moving really fast. And let me tell you, I don't have a skateboard, and nobody would want to see me on a skateboard, but as I walk through the campus to get to my class, my head is on a swivel, okay, because they're not really looking. And it's up to me as the pedestrian to be looking. I'm constantly looking. Okay, here you go. This is what Jesus calls us to in Matthew 24. Be ready. Be aware. You don't want to get hit by somebody on a scooter at GCU. And you don't want to be taken by surprise by Satan or by the coming of Jesus. Paul says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5. He writes that if you're in Christ, you know that he's going to come when we least expect it. And we need to be prepared. And by the way, yes, I, I am slipping past the Armageddon thing. I know some of you are like, oh, oh, I hope he talks about Armageddon. I want to talk about Armageddon. Just watch the movie and forget about it. <laughs> has nothing to do with this. But at any rate, again, I find so many people are keenly interested in exactly where this is. Where, exactly where is the Armageddon? I want to know in longitude, latitude, where is this? But again, does it really matter exactly where it is? Are you, are you planning to take a long chair and popcorn to the battle? Is that why you want to? I want to get a good seat for the final battle. Is that what it is? Here's the question. Do you know Jesus? That's the question. I don't know Jesus, but I know exactly where Armageddon is. Well, that's not going to help you at all. Okay? That's what's at stake here. Do you know Jesus? The last few verses, 17 through 21. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstorms 
about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because, they, uh, because the plague was so severe. So again, verse 17, it is done. It is finished. Salvation and judgment both are now in the books, the cross and the verdict. In verse 19, the great city was split into three parts. Okay, so this is one of those things where I was like, okay, now I I, got to know what this means. So I I did spend some time looking at this and researching it. And there's speculation as to what the three parts symbolize. It's symbolic. So there's three different great speculations on what the three parts are. And here they are. They're up on on the screen. So is it political corruption, economic corruption, and the abuse of power? Or is it idolatry, sexual immorality, and witchcraft? Or is it Satan, demons, and the unrepentant? Any of these work. In fact, I would suggest that it's probably all of these. Okay? In verse 19, God remembered Babylon the Great. He remembered political corruption, economic corruption, abuse of power, idolatry, sexual immorality, witchcraft, Satan, demons, and the unrepentant. And But he says, and God remembered Babylon the Great. I... Every time I read this, I kind of read it as a taunt. I kind of read it as a little bit of spiritual trash-talking. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about this, but, but here is the false god finally being destroyed. A god, a god that was exalted time and time again as great by unrepentant people, but now it's destroyed. It's as though God is saying, you know, you thought you had placed your faith, hope, and trust in something that was permanent, something that was real, something that was sure thing, but now do you see just how temporal it is, how perishable, how ineffective? False gods never fail to fail. Whenever you place your faith in, whatever you place your faith in, your faith is only as good as that thing's ability to deliver on its promise. God's the only one who can deliver. And we'll get a little bit more about the demise of Babylon in the next Uh, week, next Sunday. But notice again, the plagues get worse, even as humanity's wrath towards God gets worse. 100-pound hailstorms rain on the unrepentant. I don't even think Oklahoma's ever had a 100-pound hailstorm. And their response to these hailstorms, I still refuse to believe in you, but I'll curse you, God. Um, Tom Schrader used to talk about, supposedly the greatest sermon ever preached was by uh, Jonathan Edwards couple hundred years ago, Um, and the name of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and he says what we live in today is a culture that is more defined by God in the hands of angry sinners. Now, I I decided I want to do this today. I think this graph kind of gives you, since we're in Revelation, which is the culmination of the biblical story, this graph is a chiastic understanding of the entire biblical story. Right here, you have it. Okay? The arrow coming down is God creating, and the ultimate creation was human beings. That's the arrow coming down. The X, anybody want to guess what the X is there, that first X? That's Genesis 3. That's the fall. That's original sin. That arrow is then Israel, God's people. You get to the cross. Does anybody have any idea what the cross represents? (laughs) 
That's the crucifixion of Jesus. The next arrow is the church. That X there is Revelation 4 through 20. Judgment of sin. And then that last arrow down is the coming of the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21 and 22. So, you see these arrows. God creating humanity is synonymous with the new Jerusalem. The Garden of Eden with the new Jerusalem. The fall, the original sin, goes with judgment. Israel goes with the church. Christ and the crucifixion is at the center of all of it. Center of, of all history. So the cross. We often think, again, just re- recalling so many conversations that I have with, with people um, who, are, who, who show antipathy towards Christianity and the idea of Jesus. Um, they often think of, of only of a God who crushed his son for sin, and people recoil at that. They think it's harsh. I, I've even heard it. I've heard this said, and I've read essays about this, that God the Father is a child abuser. It's how they've described him. What we forget or don't know is that it is his and his son's great love that the son willingly took on flesh and then took on the payment for our sin. He will, it was for the joy set before him, we're told in Scripture that Jesus went to the cross and he took on the wrath of the Father on himself so that you and I could be saved. Sin has to be paid for. It must be atoned for, for there to be redemption. So the question is, are you going to allow Jesus to do it for you or are you going to take that, that wrath yourself? Those who are in Christ are blessed because Jesus joyously and gladly paid the price for us. So next Sunday... We get way more details about the fall of Babylon. Don't miss it. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and its truth. And this was rough today. Man, I, I, I fully acknowledge that. But it's also something that had to happen and has to happen. And, and, and any of us who have even an ounce of justice in our bones, in our heart, in our soul, recognize the reality of this, the truth of this, and the necessity of this. And so, God, let us praise you, for you are great and amazing, and you are going to do this for us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.